Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, November 9th, 2007. This week, episode 58 comes to you live from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the cyber jockey, CJ Zach Zlotnick. <laughs> Easy there, Java. Good morning, Zach. How are you, CJ? Good. How are you, Joe? Great. Joining us remote from Florida is the Z-Man, my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick. We've got to get him unmuted. Hello, Cliff. A little north of Florida, Atlanta, Georgia today, Joe. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Okay. Well... We we are beginning to lose track of uh, where each other are from, from week to week here anymore, uh, Cliff. Anyway, uh, good to have you back, and uh, good to be back live. And uh, we've got a great show lined up. We've got the microband trivia quiz coming up here in just a moment. We've got Mr. Brant Miller from DiGiorgio Associates, also past president of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council. And uh, we may have a little news segment. I think we've got a special caller maybe waiting on the line. And uh, before we move on to any of those, let's go back to you, Cliff, or CJ. Oh, let's do the sponsors first, huh? What do you think, CJ? How about Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com? Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Great. The uh, talk shoe folks have made it a lot easier to contact the show now. Just go to our website, www.iaqradio.com. Follow the directions. You can get in and uh, call us or email us, text message, whatever, uh, whatever method you prefer. Or if you'd like to send us an email, my email is joe.hughes, at IAQ Training. Or we've got uh, Cliff uh, Zlotnick. Want to do that one for me, CJ? Cliff Zlotnick at unsmoke.com, U-N-S-M-O-K-E.com. And Zlotnick, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K. C-L-I-F-F-Z-L-O-T-N-I-K at U-N-S-M-O-K-E.com. Some people put that C in there. All right, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at 
iaqtraining.com. Let's move it over to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, for the Microband Trivia Challenge. Joe, I think you meant me, but I think you meant me, but uh, CJ, you're filling in today. All right, I love it. I'll fill in for the trivia question. And without further ado, congratulations to Stephen Richford from Cornwall, United Kingdom, who provided Otto von Bismarck as the correct answer for trivia question number 46. Stephen's Stephen's prize for successfully answering the trivia question is on its way across the pond to him. You can win cool prizes too by successfully answering microband trivia questions. You can phone in, fax in email in, or answer questions directly on the IAQ Radio website at iaqradio.com. And now, Joe, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, November 9th, 2007 is, what is a hypocost? H-Y-P-O-C-A-U-S-T. Repeat, what is a hypocost? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, CJ. Our first guest today is Mr. Brant Miller. Brant joined DiGiorgio Associates in May of 2007 as a member of their engineering division located in Farmingdale, Maine. He's got over 26 years of experience in design, installation, operations, and maintenance of HVAC and plumbing systems. His background includes projects for the industrial, institutional, retail, commercial, multifamily residential and healthcare facilities. With DAI, Brant specializes in HVAC and plumbing system design. Prior to joining DAI, Brant worked for numerous consulting engineering companies in Maine. He worked as a facilities manager also for a large state office building. For a time, he was self-employed, specializing in indoor air quality, related work, and facilities condition assessments. Brant's uh, degree is a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Purdue University. He's also a licensed professional engineer in Maine and Massachusetts. And I believe we've got some intro music here, CJ. All right. Welcome, Brant. Hi. Good. Good to have you with us. Oh, we've already got an answer on the uh, on the question here. Oh, these guys are quick anymore. We'll have to see what we can do, Brand. I don't know if you had that answer or not, but welcome to uh, IAQ Radio. We've been looking forward to talking to you a little bit about uh, some of the activities up in Maine. Maine doesn't well, get a, to be here. Yeah, thank you. It, Maine doesn't get a lot of intent, attention sometimes, and uh, so we thought it'd be great to bring you in. And it came by way of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the um, Maine Indoor Air Quality Council and, and what your involvement is now? Well, I, I guess it goes back um, quite a few years, 10-plus um, years. Uh, I had a lot of involvement uh, with the American Lung Association of Maine, uh, doing a lot of uh, indoor air quality work, um, uh, with uh, schools in particular at the time. Uh, we were up task forces uh, looking at things. Uh, there were uh, a, a number of small groups that uh, would get together. And then in 1997, 
Um, there was a project uh, called the Maine Environmental Priorities Project uh, here in Maine, and it identified indoor air quality as one of the top issues in Maine. And so out of a bunch of those small groups, uh, we got together and um, eventually formed the council. So I, my involvement was from before it even started. Now, what, what year was that again? I'm sorry, I missed that. Well, we started in uh, 1997 formally uh, trying to get the group together, and uh, our actual incorporation was March of 1998. So we'll be approaching our 10-year anniversary this coming spring. So you're pretty close to you know one of the oldest indoor air quality associations in the country i think the iaqa was about that time iaq council was about that time that's and, correct okay and who were some of the other if you don't mind I'm, I'm always interested in the history of these things who were some of the other uh, movers and shakers that helped start that well a lot of the folks were from the uh, the lung association so uh, we had a lot of um, uh, health educators that were involved um, a number, quite a number of other uh, engineers um, around, and some state agency folks uh, from the uh, Maine Department of Environmental Protection, um, Bureau of Health. Uh, some of those folks, um, I, I guess, those were the primary movers uh, at the very beginning. Okay, and what what does the council do now? What is the the purpose behind the council now? Well, our purpose is to promote the improvement of all indoor environments in the state. Okay. Uh, we do that um, through uh, developing resources that, uh, that could be available to, to professionals, uh, policymakers, and the public. Um, we uh, provide education and training and just general promotion of, of healthy environments. Uh, we develop uh, guidelines and best practices for people to use uh, for both commercial and residential use, and we also are active at the policy arena here in Maine. Cliff, if, if you want to jump in at any point, just let me know. It's a little tough to coordinate from... Uh, yeah, fine. No, go ahead. You're doing okay, fine. Okay, great. Uh, well, let's go a little bit into, if you wouldn't mind, Brant, th these things are sometimes a little complicated to get started. What's your corporate structure like? Okay, we started out just, um, I don't know what our original was, we incorporated uh, first, and then um, in December of 1999, we were able to receive uh, our 501c3 status. I see, and how are you funding that? We are funding the council, um, well, let me start back at the beginning. The, the initial funding was um, uh, our one of our primary partners uh, from the very beginning, of course, the Lung Association of Maine. Uh, we also got funding from through the um, uh, State Bureau of Health and a limited amount from our membership. And then uh, as we move forward, we've uh, um, been uh, obtaining corporate sponsorships over the years. Uh, we, we most recently have gotten um, a number of, uh, of new key sponsors uh, from, the, from the private sector. And how many members do you have now? I looked on our membership list uh, that we have posted, and, and there was just slightly over 300. And that fluctuates around a little bit um, uh, around times of conferences and etc. A lot of people tend to join prior to a conference and 
and that kind of thing. So it fluctuates a little bit. And I understand you have an annual conference as well as a part of the uh, indoor air quality. We, that's one of our one of our major events is is an annual conference. Uh, our next one coming up uh, is March 26th of uh, 08, and we're just just beginning to um, put together the agenda for that. Uh, we typically get around 300. Uh, people at these conferences. Uh, we've had as many as 400 before if we really happen to get a, a really hot issue. Uh, but 300 is about average. Do you pull people in from uh, all of New England pretty much, or is it pretty local? It's primarily Maine, although we get um, we, we most always get a few people from Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And then, of course, we bring in um, uh, speakers and, and so forth from, from all over the country. Okay. Now, I, I've got a – I don't know if this is a tough one or not, but what, what accomplishment of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council are you most proud of? I know you were, you know, a prime mover and shaker in the organization, past president. What makes you the most proud? I think the, the thing that I take the most pride in is, is our policy work. Um, I'm – chair of our policy committee and we work very closely uh, with uh, three or four other uh, key folks and our executive director and we have uh, begun to um, be a a real presence with legislature primarily as a resource uh, and they have committee hearings and work sessions um, people uh, have gotten to the point where some of them look around to see if uh, if we're there our executive director, our executive director uh, Christine Crocker, has become sort of known as the the in, indoor air lady. Uh, okay. Yeah. That was uh, actually one it. of the questions you anticipated. One, Christine Crocker, she's the executive director, and uh, that's correct. So she's the go-to person in the area with mm -hmm. respect to uh, questions on indoor air quality. That's great. And um, now there was a time, and I, I think it was fairly recently where mold legislation was proposed to address testing and remediation standards mm -hmm. in Maine. Can you explain how that came about and what the outcome was with respect to any legislation and how the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council was involved? Because I, I think this is a big issue nationwide mm -hmm. and uh, others could learn from your experience. Yeah, I, um, if I can get this right, uh, the it I believe that it actually ended up that there was not legislation proposed. It was uh, proposed as a, some sort of work plan, but the gist of it was that they wanted to set um, limits, uh, airborne limits of uh, of mold that would be healthy or not healthy. And during the early discussions, we got uh, very involved and um, tried to educate some of the uh, legislators that. There really wasn't good science behind setting, uh, you know, specific levels of, of some of those kinds of things, and it was much more complicated than that. And so they, uh, in turn, um, assigned uh, a couple of the state agencies to um, form a mold task force and come back with a report. Okay. And and um, the uh, task for the, the main agencies then contracted essentially with us, the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council, 
to provide leadership for that task force. Now let me. And so we. Uh, before we go so any we further, had, was that something that was um, the result of concern about residential exposure or school exposure or public buildings or all of the above? We think it was probably primarily residential and school, but to to a great extent, it would have been all of the above. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead with your other point. Yeah, and then so we uh, we convened a task force and had a, uh, a number of uh, meetings um, and developed a uh, a report for the legislature. Uh, we explained uh, some about what the science was and wasn't around surrounding mold. Uh, we explained to them that there were quite um, quite extensive uh, standards and guidelines already available through uh, the EPA and various things for proper techniques of uh, remediation and, and control. Uh, we didn't recommend that we needed any new standards in that respect. Uh, we did make some recommendations about um, some things about uh, contractor disclosure to make sure that uh, people could get qualified uh, contractors to do the remediation work um, and not just get a, uh, a fly-by-night person that might not do a good job. Um, we made recommendations that the um, that the state um, provide some infrastructure so that they would be a place to go for um, for mold questions because there currently there really isn't any place formally for them to go. And go go ahead. Um, I was just curious about the now. You made these recommendations. One, I I noted too the contractor disclosure and the state infrastructure. What mm -hmm. have they done? Uh, at this point, nothing. Okay. Okay. That, uh, that report was uh, submitted. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it was in February of uh, last year, and I believe the um, uh, the main CDC is is required to have a report back to the legislature again in this January or February, and as far as we know, at this point, um, they haven't started writing it yet. Uh, we have made some, or are in the process of making some offers to assist them with that, um, but not a lot of prog very little progress has been made. On the uh, contractor disclosure and also on the state infrastructure, I guess they could right. always just point to your your website. You've got a pretty good website, don't you? The, the, we we do get we do field a lot of phone calls. Uh, there's a lot of phone calls that, that get fielded uh, through the um, um, Bureau of Health um, through some of the other programs, but uh, it's uh, really burdening uh, some of those programs because they're not really funded or geared towards. Uh, towards the mold work, so uh, in some cases they refer it off to us, uh, and um, our executive director does field quite a few calls and tries to um, redirect the, uh, some of those folks to some of the resources that we have uh, available on the web. Now that, okay, so there was never any mention of licensing or anything like that? That is part of it as well, uh, and that's a big issue right now um, with con well with contractors in general. There wasn't there wasn't specific recommendations for for licensing the the mold remediators at that point. Okay. But uh, that's kind of a um, an issue that's 
that's coming forth with a number of other contractor licensing slash certification issues that uh, have been popping up in the legislature almost every year now for the last few years. So there has been some movement toward that, and and has the council discouraged licensing contractors and consultants for mold remediation and assessment work? No. No? We have not discouraged it. Um, we do feel, though, that uh, that we need to uh, have the ducks in a row in terms of, of any licensing of any contractors, whether it's remediators or not, to make sure that there's uh, an infrastructure in place that owns it and that, uh, that there's actually um, the appropriate um, standards that would become codified in such a way that you could hold the, uh, hold the licensed people up to those standards. Okay. So do you consider, I mean, it seems to me like what happened, and then this would be a great model for other states, and I'll ask you in a moment a question about that, but it seems to me like what happened is you, you had this association in place, they came to you, um, and you were able to really guide them in a way that um, avoided them stepping into the, uh, sometimes, you know, the the muck, I guess you could call it, of regulating something without really knowing what the heck they were regulating. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. Yeah, and I think that that's what we try to see our role in a number of, of areas on. And this this was one that I think we're I think we're we're heading along the right path. We uh, you know we've got a long way to go, obviously, because there's a lot of those issues um, that we've mentioned here with licensing and standards and so forth that have to be worked out. But uh, at least we haven't jumped in and tried to uh, get the cart before the horse. That's interesting. That's a, that's a great model. And I'm, I'm curious, have any other states contacted or state or groups, I guess, contacted the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council to think about or discuss starting their own state association? We've had a few... We've had a few inquiries, um, and I don't know all of them, but I, I believe uh, some time ago we had some inquiry from New Hampshire, but I believe um, so, somebody that was thinking about heading something up there maybe got their job changed somehow and no longer um, uh, work in that area. Uh, we have had in, inquiries uh, from Minnesota, and I'm not sure, but what they may have an organization in place now. I, I, I don't know the result of that, but there were quite a few inquiries, I believe, from Minnesota. And I think if you check around a little bit, you'll find out that there has been some pretty interesting legislation in Minnesota. So they, they may be at least heading in that direction, if not there already. And I guess the, the overall lesson was that uh, you got involved early on at the committee level before it really got to the point where it was out of control. Is that somewhat accurate? That's accurate. Great. And, of course, that's, a, that's a, always a difficult thing. Um, we struggle with that as an organization to try to be as proactive rather than reactive. And in many cases, uh, we don't even catch something until it's already almost in place, and then we, of course, have to be reactive. But uh, in this case, we were able to be, I think, quite proactive and got involved early enough that um, that I think we were able to give it some positive direction. That's that's a great uh, summary of what you've done up there with, the, with that Indoor Air Quality Council. I just want to give Cliff a chance if he had anything to add on that subject before we move on to the next one. Nope, nothing to add on that one. All I'll right. hold my piece. 
All right, Cliff, thank you. Uh, the next item I wanted to talk to you a bit about here, Brand, is just some building science and, you know, um, HVAC, some call it HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning before the acronym police get me here, uh, mechanical <laughs> contracting issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, DiGiorgio and Associates does, exactly what kind of a company uh, you're working for now and, and what your responsibilities are there? Sure. Um let me just make it clear too. I, I'm fairly new to the company, so uh, there's uh, still some things I'm I'm learning. But uh, primarily, um, DiGiorgio Associates is um, an organization that's planning, architecture, and engineering for the healthcare uh, industry. Primarily, we do a little bit of work outside of healthcare, but the uh, the bulk of work is there. And then we have. Um, sort of a, an associated or sister company uh, or whatever called Monitor Builders that does construction management. Okay, so it's primarily healthcare facilities. That answers one of the, the questions I had. And with these healthcare facilities, well, let's start with some of the uh, climate issues you have to deal with. Can you tell us a little bit about the climate issues that uh, you deal with there in Maine and then how maybe a little bit about how you... Um, how you solve some of the problems of those unique climate issues? Well, I think probably the uh, the, the the key environmental factor is that it's uh, that it's cold and damp here, um, so that um, creates a lot of uh, moisture control issues um, that we not only get into in terms of designing the buildings themselves, but uh, with the uh, HVAC systems. Uh, we have to be uh, very careful that um, that we don't introduce more moisture into the spaces. Uh, so there's um, sizing of coils and so forth is critical so that we get some dehumidification um, at the right times. Um, also, since it's cold, uh, we have a challenge in the wintertime where we're bringing in um, in some areas of, of health care 100% outside air in the wintertime when that air is very cold. And um, so it becomes very dry, and we have to, uh, have to provide humidification in order to um, to get back into the comfort and and safe uh, areas. And this is when you're. Can you give me an example of an area where you do provide 100% outdoor? 100% um, outdoor air would uh, would be in uh, ORs, for instance. Okay, and so you have to somehow get the humidity back up and how do you you know what's what's been the most successful thing for you uh, i think mo most of the systems um are are systems that have a lot of rows of coil in so that you can get the dehumidification uh, that you need in the summertime okay and then and then um usually duct mounted humidification system so that you can um, control this uh, humidity in the wintertime uh, very tightly uh, into that same space. Um, the ORs, are, of course, are, are, are highly critical, and there's more and more movement now that different kinds of operations, in fact, require somewhat different temperature and humidity conditions. What Can you give and us so an idea of what those are? What yeah. kind of range you're looking at? Um you can range in in an OR. You can you can range in temperature anywhere from the mid 60s to the low 70s in terms of dry bulb temperature, and um, relative humidity is usually around 50 percent. 
About 50% would be ideal yeah. in, in the ORs. Usually, yeah. Okay. Um, now, there's some unique... It can range anywhere in an, in an OR from 30 to 60, and temperatures typically 68 to 73, although I, I've seen in the literature um, some um, some literature is now saying that for some, some types of operations that they want it a little bit colder than that. And so when you start dropping the temperature, of course, that affects the relative humidity, and so you've got to have the capability within the air handling system in order to... Um, to uh, take out a greater degree of moisture. Now, when in the winter, when you've got, I would imagine, I don't know the climate nearly as well as you. What does the relative humidity outdoors get down to? Well, relative humidity, of course, is the uh, amount of moisture that that the air can uh, handle. So, if you're down to, to zero degrees, uh, you're probably pretty nearly at saturation. Okay. Uh, as you warm that air up, though, and do not add any more moisture to it, um, its capability of holding moisture, of course, is much greater, and so the relative humidity begins to drop very drastically. So you take that zero-degree air and bring it up to 65 or 70, and all of a sudden it's very dry. I see. And then you've got to uh, reintroduce some moisture to it to uh, get it back into the level that's desirable in those operating that's, rooms that's or whatever. Correct. That's correct. What's uh, without getting too technical? What type of humidification are you using in these in these types of uh, situations? We usually use steam humidification, and we have to be careful and pro provide what they call food grade steam uh, into the air systems so that it um, does not um, have contaminants in it that are would aggravate things in the in any of the spaces, let alone the ORs. Now, are they are some of these ORs also um, high efficiency filtration? You know, filtration as well. Or we, I, I, my brother yes. works in a hospital. And he sometimes said that there's no, there's no, uh, you know, filtration. They just bring in outdoor air. You get yeah. both. We we do uh, an increasing amount of filtration, um, uh, depending on the conditions outside, of course, for the 100% systems. And then there's a lot of other systems in the in hospitals that are allowed to do recirculated air if it is properly filter, filtered. And so in some areas uh, where we are really concerned about infection control, we uh, may recirculate air through HEPA filters. So you're allowed to bring in 100% outdoor air, but it doesn't have to be filtered. But when you're recirculating it, it may be required to be filtered. Is that accurate? Uh, in the ORs, um, we would have to do some degree of uh, filtration. Even when you're bringing in the 100%? Uh, absolutely, yes. Okay. And then um, uh, ASHRAE has some, some guidelines on, <clears throat> on uh, outdoor uh, pollutants. And if you're in areas where certain uh, of those particulates are, are at critical levels, uh, you may have to do uh, additional filtration. Clip, I know you had a question or two on the uh, health care issue. Did you want to bring those in now? Yeah, I would. I think it's a perfect uh, segue. Grant, your firm's website highlights projects your firm has done and is currently doing in healthcare sector. I've got a few questions on, on this phase of the work. First okay. of all, I noticed that one of your uh, co-staff members received a designation from 
I guess called healthcare facility design professional certification. What group offers that? And can you tell that is me? a new that's a new program through ASHRAE. Um, the first um, certification test was held in June, and um, so there's a, the first batch of, uh, of uh, certified uh, healthcare facility design professionals uh, out as a result of that, and the um, they now have multiple sites around the country where you can go and, and sit for the exam. Uh, the exam, you it's a an exam based on um, the a, a lot of the, the high hospital design and construction guidelines, and it also requires, um, I think, a minimum of two years' experience in healthcare. Um, plus, uh, also requires some continuing education credits along the way, so that uh, when you are when you hold that certification, uh, your your clients know that um, you. you you not only were able to, to pass a test once, but that you're continuing to keep abreast of, of the new developments in the uh, in the industry. Thank you. I can see how that would benefit the client. Uh, ASHRAE is concerned with fresh air and has made recommendations as to how much fresh air is required for certain indoor environments. As nosocomial or hospital-related infections are on the rise, what is your opinion on extracting or exhausting air as an infection control technique, and is or should ASHRAE be equally concerned about removing some of this contaminated indoor air rather than trying to filter it? Well, I think we use both techniques, um, and, and ASHRAE is is in the process currently of um, of publishing a new standard. Uh, it's called standard. Um, let's see if I can get a hold of it here. Standard uh, 170 ventilation of healthcare facilities. It's uh, still in the public review uh, phase, and very much mirrors rec the requirements that we deal with on a daily basis through the uh, um, AIA guidelines for design and construction of healthcare facilities. And we use both 100% uh, exhaust techniques and also filtration techniques um, for infection control. There's an, another uh, guidance document that we use a great, a great deal, um, and that is uh, put out by the, uh, uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. Uh, it's a, a guideline for preventing the transmission of uh, tuberculosis in healthcare facilities. And they talk a lot about the ventilation that uh, is required uh, for uh, for the infection control there, and uh, again we use both 100% exhaust in some cases or recirculation. Uh, but when the recirculation occurs, it has to be highly filtered. You know, I just wonder. You know, HEPA, you know, is going to take out 99.975% of these particles that are you know, larger than 0.3 microns, but mm -hmm. you start thinking about viruses and bacteria and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's pretty small stuff. I always wondered how much would actually get get through. Actually, the the, the HEPA filtration is, is considered to be quite effective. Um, there's also some discussion in, in some of the literature about using UV uh, ultraviolet light to, uh, to continue to kill some of the things, too, but... Um, most of the guidelines prefer 100% exhaust and then go on to say where that's not 
practical, uh, and, and that could be for a number of reasons that uh, the recirculation can occur if it's if it's uh, filtered properly. You can have sometimes existing conditions or energy concerns that that may um, limit your ability to to exhaust 100% of it. You know, as another infection control technique, do you see, you know, from your observation point, a movement towards the use or building in of either finished materials or, or building materials, antimicrobial protection? Are you seeing this? We're seeing some of it, uh, particularly in the area of paints. Uh, a lot of the, the paints now are considered to be antimicrobial. Um, there are, are some materials that the architects are beginning to use that that are are deemed that. Um, I think there's, my experience anyway, there's mixed literature in terms of uh, of how effective that really is. Um, and so, I, but I think we're going to see a, a growth of that. Again, with the probably the primary one that's in place already uh, is is with the paint products. Also, of course, surfaces are important, uh, the, the ones that are non-porous, for instance. And they're not necessarily labeled as antimicrobial, but they would be surfaces where it would be very difficult for things to grow on because they would be kept clean. You know, you had mentioned the antimicrobial paints or, or paints that have this additive under the EPA's treated article exemption. And, you know, personally, I'm, I'm very happy that they're using a lot of paints and in hospitals, and are you still are you still using or specifying the amount of wall covering in these hospital rooms, or have they kind of moved over to paint? I believe it's more in the paint. I have to say, being on the engineering side, I, I'm not as directly involved in in some of, of those uh, uh, product selections, so I'm I'm a little I'm a little outside of my area of expertise there. Yeah, well, I think most people with building science backgrounds realize that that wall covering sometimes is an unintentional uh, vapor barrier that you know mm -hmm. causes problems with materials uh, underneath it. But I'm going to turn it back to Joe. Okay, thanks, Cliff. Brand, if you could hold on for one moment, I've got a, a caller on the line here. I'd want I'd like to pull in, and uh, they may have a question for you. But uh, let's check it out. Uh, could you get that okay. one for me, CJ? Hello. Who do we have on the line here with us? You have Dave Gett. Uh, oh, Mr. Dave Gett. Great to, great to hear from you, Dave. Uh, we were at the uh, Crossroads IAQ IEQ conference yesterday. It went very well. I think CJ's got some. I don't know if you're Irish or not, but hang on one second, Dave. We've got something for you. Yeah. All right. For those of you that don't know, Dave, um, I thought that might be you there, Dave. You um, did a great job on the conference yesterday, and I thought one of the questions and, uh, you know, speaking of segues, Cliff talked about filtration. You had a section yesterday on nanotechnology. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how it went? Yeah, I'll say it. Well, uh, Cliff and, uh, uh, Cliff and uh, Brandt, uh, it's deja vu all over again, That's, <laughs> as Yogi Berra would say. <laughs> We we covered uh, we covered ethics on our on our panel, and I'll get to the back uh, get to that in the, in the back end here. Uh, having, uh, Brandt was having the same issues uh, with uh, what everybody else is having, 
as far as any regulations, uh, are they going to work poorly like most of them do in this case? Uh, getting back to, I'll get touch up touch bases with that a little bit later. Uh, yeah, we did have a nanotech thing that featured two real heavyweights uh, from Jersey here, uh, Bob Adams of Environment Incorporation, a master, a master of Science in the CSP, and uh, Dr. Robert Haig, which is CIH, uh, in New Jersey Rep Masters, where they're using, uh, they won't call them paints, but they are uh, using a uh, nanotech uh, protectant. It's not a uh, biological, dis uh, biological disinfectant, and it's registered as a protectant that mechanically destroys uh, bacteria. That was an interesting, but uh, the other interesting thing I saw yesterday was that uh, going back to the filtration issue, they were talking about, okay, while they're working with these nanotechnologies, these very, very tiny particles, much you know, smaller than one micrometer particle, sort of like Cliff was talking about, um, even smaller than the viruses, they were essentially saying that the current type of filtration we are using, I guess high-efficiency particulate air filtration, actually is somewhat effective on those and pretty effective. Is that the impression you got as well, Dave? Uh, uh, I would say that that, that is not, not the case, uh, Joe. Okay. Uh, there are some, there are some thoughts that it is, but these things are entirely too small. They could penetrate through and, and come through a uh, HEPA. I wish, I wish the good doctor was here. Uh, the, the good doctor's on uh, on vacation over in Thailand, but uh, we'll have him back next week. We'll talk more about filtration issues. But uh, what else did uh, what else was of interest? And, and it, did you have any questions for Brand as well, Dave? Uh, well, Brand, you know the questions are already answered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Uh, the questions came up. I had the same answers, and we, uh, at the end of the end of the program last night, got into that with some depth, some argument, but some depth. So, but uh, I think Brand is right on the money. Uh, you, you, they're dragging their feet in Maine. Nobody knows really what to do. That's probably one of the reasons, and they, that's their way of saying by dragging their feet that they don't know. And I'm guessing this, uh, but the. Uh, we have the same issues, whether the quality of contractors, uh, the relevance of consultants uh, and contractors, and what, what position does the line doesn't go get across a line, and whether they're too palsy lousy in many cases. Uh, that's another story, perhaps. But uh, it is a difficult, uh, difficult situation that everybody is facing with the IAQ. And it's, uh, it has to be resolved hopefully very soon, or you're going to have governments getting into it and really bollocksing everything up. Well, I'm curious, Brent, what's, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I know we didn't really prepare for this, but, um, you know, there are some people who feel that you should not be the consultant and the contractor on the same project and that, you know, contractors should never clear their own project. Do you have uh, an opinion on that? Well, that, that's a difficult uh, one. I, I think uh, I think the important thing is disclosure. Um, in in a lot of areas, it's it's difficult to not be doing two things at once. Saying being the uh, consultant and the remediator, for instance. Um, but the important thing is that the consumer, the end result, knows that that's the case. Um, I think you should avoid that potential conflict whenever possible, but um, 
I think in in reality, at least in in Maine, it's sometimes difficult to to not um, be one and the same. And one of the things that we've recommended is that um, that we don't necessarily just ban that possibility, but just make sure that everybody is aware of everybody's role and and where all they've been involved. So there's it's not behind the scenes. We could have used him on the panel yesterday. What do you think, Dave? Hey, hey, wait, but this is recorded, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, listen, Dave, I, I wanted to uh, real quickly just say congratulations on, on a, a job well done on the um, 2000 Crossroads IAQ IEQ convention, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again in 2008. Can you stick around and join us for the roundup here at the end of the show? Can I? Yes. Or Did you have time? Or, or me? Uh, you, Dave. Uh, I'll be glad to. Great. Well, we're going to mute you, and then we'll bring you back at the end of the show, if that's all right with you. That's fine. Great. Thank you, Dave. Okay. Let's get back with Brant Miller here for just a moment. We've got a couple other issues, Brant. I know that prior to um, getting on with the Georgia, you talked about doing some other indoor air quality type work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you did as you know, as far as indoor air quality projects, maybe one of your most interesting projects, one of your more unique projects, something along those lines. Well, I think uh, probably the, the most interesting project that I uh, worked on um, as a private consultant was uh, under contract with the uh, American Lung Association of Maine, uh, and I believe the funding came from NIOSH. Um, our project we called the Safe and Healthy Schools Project. This was a uh, pilot program to try to implement the use of um, environmental management systems within schools to um, to manage their environments better. And we did uh, work with a number of schools. Um, one in particular was a middle school down in South Portland, and. And we actually got a uh, environmental merit award for from the uh, U.S. EPA on that. Um, but um, we had they were the real success of of uh, using that uh, system to manage their environment was that they were able to manage a lot of the hysteria that sometimes goes with indoor air quality problems. Um, Part of the system, is it, of course, it documents everything that you that you have and are doing, and makes it very public. And as a result of um, using this kind of system and getting the the public involved and so forth, uh, they were in a couple cases actually able to do a couple of mold remediation problems uh, with without shutting the school down and getting all kinds of hysterical press and everything else. And uh, they were just felt that it was very successful in, in that respect. I think that was my favorite project. That was your favorite. What, how about, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't prep you for this one either. Give me a, a project that kind of didn't go the way you would like, if you, if you don't mind. Or maybe there haven't been any. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't think of any. You know, there's, there's always a few projects around where communications break down or something like that. Um, but um, from a, uh, a technical standpoint, um, oh, there's been a few projects. One maybe in particular that um, perhaps uh, heating didn't go too well because there wasn't enough communication between the engineering and the architecture portion, and so the arch the the building structure itself wasn't what it was supposed to be. Um, those kinds of things occasionally happen, unfortunately. 
Well, when you when you mention heating, I'm just curious. What um, are there any unique systems you can talk to us about that you've worked on uh, with respect to heating and, and even you know air conditioning? Well, I've used mostly conventional systems, I guess, in, in my experience, and in, in, in trying to you know accomplish good environments uh, without getting into uh, a lot of experimental stuff. Um, so I guess I I haven't worked on any that. I guess I would consider um, non-standard technology. We will be probably working on a project soon uh, using geothermal for heat, and that is uh, there are a number of successful projects here in Maine now with that, and we are anticipating that we'll probably be doing one of those. So that'll be uh, that'll be interesting uh, because it'll be the first one that I have directly been involved with. Yeah, that's a a bit of a a slightly controversial issue. I, I, I've talked to some people about that, and I, I'll be curious to maybe have you come back and uh, let us know how that comes along. Well, it will be interesting because I, I know we've uh, involved with the ASHRAE chapter up here, and we've had a few um, presentations uh, around a couple key projects here in, in Maine that, that went that direction, and um, I think you get sometimes two different opinions as to whether they were successful or not. Well, that sure has been my experience. I was at a conference in uh, Westford where a gentleman gave a presentation uh, talking about how you know geothermal heat pumps do not work, bottom line. And I, I was kind of taken back. Nobody really challenged it. And then after the conference, we had a gentleman on by the name of Lou Harriman, who I'm, you're probably familiar with up there from New Hampshire. And uh, he said, well, you know, that may have been a little... Uh, a little, a little over uh, overstating the issue. Maybe they don't work as well as sometimes they're, uh, uh, you know, promoted to work. And there are certain instances where they could possibly work. So I'll be curious to have you come back and let us know a little yeah, more. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I think we do have a couple projects up here that that people would say are are working pretty good, and then some others that that aren't. So it's it's a. Uh, It'll be, it'll be a challenge. Well, the, the other thing I had on my list here, I, I noticed on your website that um, you do promote uh, some LED lead-type projects. And uh, is there a big demand in your area for green or lead construction? Um, not a lot in healthcare yet, although it's becoming quite... Um, quite a buzzword. Um, we do have uh, a couple of LEED certified uh, professionals here uh, already and we of course try to incorporate uh, a lot of those kinds of things into projects, um, ones that just make sense. Uh, we have not done a, a, a formal LEED project yet. I suspect that it is in our future. Um, there are in Maine in general there are, we do have a few LEED buildings now and we're, as a back to the indoor air quality council, for instance, uh, we're looking heavily at trying to do case studies on some of those lead buildings to see how successful they were, not only for the energy and renewability concepts that that lead is famous for, but are they in fact healthy buildings after they've been operating for four or five years? That's the big question, I guess, huh? We're we're anxious to find out whether they whether they really are or not. But um, the green green concept there's um, there's uh, 
a lot of uh, a lot of discussion on that uh, now in the in the healthcare area, and I don't know off the top of my head uh, how many hospitals have actually achieved lead. I know there are a couple in some parts of the country, um, and more and more of them are beginning to at least talk about it. And my hunch is that it may be a while before we do a full blown lead project, but I think we will be incorporating green standards and lead concepts in the projects, um, which we're already doing some of, and, and we'll, we're, I'm sure we'll be doing more of that. What what kind of uh, standards are you incorporating in now without going to the full and, and lead? I should, before I get hit with the acronym police, is uh, leadership and energy and environmental design here. Um, what types of, uh, they got me, all right, uh, license and registration, I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, um, what types of things are you building in now? Well, we're, of course, using more efficient um, uh, equipment and the some of the material selection that we talked about earlier uh, would be considered uh, green selections, um, low or no VOC emitting um, materials, um, different refrigerants that we're using that, uh, that won't off gas. Um, a few of those kinds of things we're, we're incorporating. Uh, some of the other lead things like uh, the local products and renewable products and so forth like that that we, we probably haven't incorporated much of yet. Cliff, anything you wanted to add at this point? Me? Um, yep. Yeah, if I could, just sure. uh, I, I just uh, you know that we talked about the council and uh, and how we got funded and so forth and. Um, you know, I just I guess I want to take the opportunity to you know to um, you know publicly say that you know the American Lung Association of Maine has been a, a super partner over the years, uh, not only for funding but also in in really working with us. And we have two corporate sponsors now: uh, Northeast Labs out of Winslow, and Mechanical Services, which is a, a service company out of Portland uh, that have come on board. Uh, uh, in a big way with the council and are, are supporting us. Um, but we have all kinds of other uh, partners as well that uh, we'd like to recognize whenever we can. I won't, won't go through the, the long list, but um, these folks not only help us keep alive and well, but they also uh, make great technical contributions and, and partners in, in our planning processes as well. I, uh, You know, I think that's good information for maybe some of the other associations out there in fact i'm thinking myself that um you know the indoor air quality association i don't know how much we've actually approached uh the american lung association with respect to partnering on some things i think that's a great tip for people that are in the association business i don't know cliff you i know you're very involved with uh iicrc and uh the restoration industry association are you familiar if they've uh done anything with the American Lung Association? No, I think that those two organizations have not. There is a franchising organization called Steamatic that's out of Texas, and I believe that they partnered with the American Lung Association, um, you know, sometime back, and they have a big duck cleaning division. They kind of specialize in that, and they tend to do a nice job at it. And I, I think that they were working, and to the best of my knowledge, are still working with the American Lung Association. I will mention too that uh, we we are are uh, 
developing an excellent working relationship with the uh, IAQA group, Glenn Feldman and, and all. Um, they were active in our um, uh, the mold task force that we talked about earlier and uh, have been up to, to visit with us um, a couple of times now. And um, we're, we're, we're really beginning to develop that relationship, and it's, uh, it's been a good one already, and I think we'll, we'll just get better. I certainly hope so. I know I, uh, in fact, I recall talking to Glenn and Bob Baker when they were between one city and another in Maine on their way to uh, visit with you guys <laughs> and uh, yeah. weren't sure exactly how long it was going to take to get there, but they made it eventually. They said, it's an awful big state. Well, listen, um, everybody, if we could hold on for one second, I think we have a section we call the Roundup, and I'd like to bring Dave Get back in. I'd like to get Cliff on the line here, keep Brand on the line for just a moment, and let's, let's wrap this thing up. But first, uh, we've got the intro to the Roundup, I believe. CJ, do you have that available? Move him on, hit him up. Hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, You Wrong. just res- uh, resurrected Rusty Draper. Yep. <laughs> that brings back memories and shows us how old we are. Yeah, maybe I should have shut up, right? That was, uh, <laughs> was that about in the early 60s, late 50s, I think. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was before my time. I, I, <laughs> I, but, uh, Impressive. <laughs> Listen, Brant, we, before we, uh, we've got about three, four minutes left here. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to uh, mention before we uh, move on to everybody else here? Uh, well, just one other uh, project that w- was a very successful one for the uh, council and continues to be is a, a series of residential training courses that we put together uh, that uh, started with uh, foundations and went to the envelope and then went to ventilation in terms of uh, residential construction, in terms of how to uh, how to make a, a healthy home and manage moisture and those kinds of things. And it's, it's really been successful with the, the contractors. Uh, local building supply companies uh, jumped right on board as sponsors and, and invited in their, their customers, and, and we were able to give these half-day seminars. Um, it looks like we're going to be perhaps exporting some of those uh, out-of-state um, in the very near future. Uh, we've also provided them for the uh, Micmac Indians uh, in the northern part of the state. Um, it's really been a successful and exciting program. I'm and glad. those are the kinds of things that we want to continue with. I'm really glad you mentioned that, and that uh, I asked the question because that's a that sounds like a really interesting program. I'd like to talk to you more about that later. Is there information on that on the website as well? I believe I believe there is. That sounds like a really uh, a very much needed program. Yes, uh, it is. Yes, it is. Right. If you go to the uh, the, the homepage, uh, that'd be www.miaqc.org. Um, you'll see a thing right on the front page there about the residential construction trainings. Great. And if listeners wanted to uh, touch base with you, is there a way they could email you or, or something like that? Um, the best way would be uh, through the uh, email on the website there, right to uh, Maine Indoor Air Quality Council, and then Christy could forward it on to me. Great. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? 
Yeah, there were two things. Actually, I wanted to get some more information from Dave and from Brant. I kind of had a question uh, for both of them. I'll, I'll do the Dave one. I'll just ask him, and then I'll let the guys answer him. Dave, when you were talking about the nanotechnology, uh, sorry I missed that program, what sort of chemistry? Is it silver technology uh, you know, or, or a different one, if, if you could kind of highlight that? Uh, yeah, well, silver basically, would, uh, uh, Cliff, would be uh, wrapped up in the, in the definition of a bi biological biocide the, or a biocide. Uh, this one is not a biocide. It's a protectant, and it's uh, – it's not a paint, but it's obviously a surface covering, <clears throat> and it puts like tiny little daggers. I'm, I want to speak to like a child like this over this, but it's like a kamikaze attack where they're attracted. The the, the negative and the positive attracts, and they uh, the viruses, proteins, bacteria destroy themselves. Okay. I think it was like a I want to say saline. I, I don't recall the exact. Yeah, I know what it is. The saline quad technology. Yes, okay. that was well, it. Aegis that was the old Anabec type and the Dow thing back years ago. Yeah, Aegis. I, I think you're right. It, it, I think it started as Dow Corning and then used to be called Silgard, Aegis, and now I think there are a couple different different people doing it. I was just kind of interested in that. And I guess for Brant, there was something on your website that really got got my attention. And what it was was this thing called Kill, Kids Build 2004, and it really sounded like both an interesting and a rewarding project. If you could just, you know, tell me and the listeners just a little bit about that. Well, I, I have to confess, I don't know a lot about it, but um, I did, uh, you asked the question, I did a little research. Uh, there's a program in the Boston area, evidently um, sponsored a great deal by the uh, um, Boston Site of Architects or, or something to that effect. Um, and they... It's Boston Society of Architects, yeah, and uh, what it is is a, a lot of companies, including um, our company, DiGiorgio Associates, uh, donate materials to this project, um, and kids build a city out of it. Uh, I guess it's uh, uh, quite an interesting project, um, and every, I don't know if it's every year or every couple of years, uh, one year it was held, I think, at the Museum of Science, and and uh, a couple other locations, and um, uh, our company donated materials to these kids, and then, and, and then, uh, you know, building materials of various sorts, and they actually create a small city out of these materials. Well, what, what an interesting and worthwhile and creative project! It struck me. Thanks. It really is. And uh, by the way, the website is um, dai-boston. Com, I believe is that accurate, Brent? That's that's correct. Okay, and uh, Dave, let's let's finish up with you. Uh, anything you wanted to add before we go? We got about a minute. Okay, I just wanted to run quick uh, uh, through the the program we had and how relevant it was. You have a lot of people there that uh, you folks will the names you'll know. Uh, we covered Anatec. We had IAQ in laboratories. Uh, uh, Carol uh, Butthouse uh, Boyer to get that CIH and MPH. And Wei Tang, and that name to most people is familiar. He was a leading apostle of the great Chin Yang. Oh, sure. Right, Wei Tang. And I'm sure everybody knows him. So uh, anyway, the, uh, we also had sick building syndrome. John Tiffany mm -hmm. was uh, uh, one of the people that uh, gave that quite well, and Brian Fury from Langan, a CIH and a CMC. 
Uh, we had the legal risk management thing, the liability end. Uh, that was given by uh, uh, Greg Katz, Charles Morgan, Dave Kidd, and Robert West. And Bob West is a great good friend of mine. He did most of the insurance uh, organization with the 9-11 tra tragedy. Yeah, they, they did yeah. a nice job on the mock trial, too. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, sir. I like to have him. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a, an attack lawyer with him. No, nah, I would like to get him on as a guest, actually. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to him. You know, you got uh, uh, Bob West again. Homeland Security track, Barry Weissman, very, very impressive fellow. He's a level four uh, Homeland Security. Wesley Van Pelt, Ph.D., CIH, uh, who doesn't do much with mold. However, he's a radiation guy and uh, gave uh, schematics out and pictures of dirty bombs and how they will approach you and how much uh, what they can do. You can carry them in a knapsack, uh, a low-level one. And Pete Karkoff, I think I know, he gave, gave a great talk on new technologies around them, the detection. And we are, our group is being called by the prosecutor's office in Bergen County, and as well as uh, Princeton, uh, Princeton uh, Plasma Laboratories and Picatinny Arsenal and GE uh, to help forward their their uh, detection devices for radiation. So this conference launched a lot of ships. Yes, it did. And uh, you did a great job with it, Dave. I look forward to uh, hopefully coming back next year. And uh, we uh, actually will pick up about three new guests, I believe, Cliff. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us here today. First, uh, I want to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, uh, for calling in from Atlanta. I got that right this time, Cliff. Always a pleasure. All you right. Uh, CJ, the cyber jockey, for handling the controls here. Uh, didn't break anything yet today. Good, good to hear. Oh, geez, CJ, right at the last minute. Okay, uh, the good doctor, Dr. Dietrich Wiles, off in uh, the wilds of Thailand, so we'll see him in a couple of weeks. I also want to thank our, uh, our special guest, Mr. Brant Miller, for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. Of course, Dave Gett for joining us with the Roundup. And most importantly, I want to thank our uh, growing group of loyal listeners. Had a nice uh, group online here today. And I uh, hope to see you all back here next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 